This morning we get to continue our series in the Psalms for the summer, and if you would take your Bibles to Psalm 145. Psalm 145. I had someone come up to me at the end of the service last week and said, Pastor Stephen, last Sunday you said Psalm 116, and I went to Psalm 1, verse 16, and I didn't see what you were reading. So we want to make it really clear. 145. I apologized for my error. If I knew the page number on my Bible, it's 782. So Psalm 145. The last several weeks, we've given some information on the Psalms as we've begun this series in the summer. Here in the Psalms, we have 150 individual poems or Psalms that are written by many different people over a period of a thousand years in Israel's history. These psalms are compiled and put together in their present form by most likely an unknown editor shortly after the captivity ended in 537 BC. David is the one that we know the most, and he's listed as the author for 73 of the psalms, less than half. 50 of the psalms remain unnamed. Moses is said to have written Psalm 90, and other authors of the psalms include Solomon, Heman, Asaph, the sons of Korah, and Ethan the Ezraite. This morning we get to look at Psalm 145, which comes right before the five-fold praise of Psalms 146 through 150, which ends the Psalter. If you read those uh, later, you will see each one begins, praise the Lord, as it begins and ends the Psalter there in a five-fold manner. Would you stand with me this morning as we read one, Psalm 145 together? I'll read aloud, and you follow along in your copy of God's Word. David writes this, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of men your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Verse 14, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. 
He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Kings and kingdoms is not something that us Americans know all too well these days. We, in fact, were ones who ran away from kings and kingdoms. England just coronated a king that they haven't had in several decades. And yet many of our stories, especially the ones we read as kids, are filled with fascination of kings and knights and the ways of life found within those characters. There was a certain type of behavior that is expected when someone is subject to the rule of a king. You are just that, subjects. You do the will of the king. It's why even in the king's coronation in England recently, it's heinous to see people holding signs that say, not our king. It's an act of tyranny and an act of division. The king is over you and your land, even in a constitutional monarchy. The king is over its people. You follow their rules. You obey their commands. They set up laws. They govern. They're considered the head of the state. In human kingdoms, empires, kings were the top. And no one dared tell a king how to rule. Or no one dared cross a king without fear of losing their head. However... In God's kingdom, God has rules for kings and how they were to rule. This morning, our psalm began with David extolling God as king. And God's rules for his kings were ones which were given in the Old Testament, by which the people, the kings who were brought in to reign, were to be led by, governed by, They had rules overseeing them and their rule and their reign, their character and their actions. Israel technically was a theocracy ruled by God, especially at first. You remember there came a time where the people clamored for a king. We want a king just like everyone else has a king. And as they did this, God, you will remember, said to Samuel the prophet, they have not rejected you, Samuel, as their leader, but they've rejected me as king over them. Deuteronomy chapter 17, before Israel is desiring a king, God knowing what was going to happen as he's sending the people of Israel into the promised land, tells the Israelites about the land and about a time that will come when they demand a king to reign over them, just like everyone else. In Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 14, it says this, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you, but you may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not, the king, must not acquire many horses for himself 
or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And the king shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of the kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." Several laws that are given by God to Israel in which the king is to be governed by. He's not to acquire these things. He's not to store up silver and gold and horses and armies and people and wives and all of these things. There are rules. And God warns the people again through Samuel when they ask that they would have a king over them. Samuel warns them. That exactly what God said back in Deuteronomy 17 will be the case if they are to get a king. These will be the ways of the king, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 11. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. All those horses he's not supposed to acquire and build up, he's going to. And guess who's going to drive them? Your sons. He's going to appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of 50, some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys even, and he will put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you on that day. You see, all of a sudden, the people of Israel are finding out that this king is going to come. The king that they wanted is going to do exactly what God told the king not to do. And in the end, they're going to get their just desserts because they asked for this. The king who comes after David, the author of this psalm, was Solomon. Solomon was said to be the wisest man who ever lived. So the chances are really high, right, of Solomon being a great example, the best example of what a godly and wise king in Israel would look like, right? One word surmise, if he's the wisest of all kings, then this is the best shot we have at following God's laws. Back in Deuteronomy 17 of what a king ought to do. But 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 11, we won't read all of it. But let me just summarize some of the statements that are given of Solomon and his reign. Solomon, again, the son of the author of this psalm. Now the weight of gold, 1 Kings chapter 10 and beginning of verse 14, now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Some of you are going to catch a number there and think a lot of it. 
666 talents of gold, besides that which came from the explorers and the business of the merchants, from all the kings of the West and the governors of the land. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The likes of it was never made in any kingdom. All of King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And Solomon gathered all the kings of the earth, uh, gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen. And Solomon's import of horses, guess where it was from? Egypt. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to his people, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. But Solomon clung to them in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives indeed turned his heart away from other, after other gods, his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice and commanded him concerning this thing. Since this has been your practice, you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom. I'll give you one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. Here is the best chance Israel ever had of having a king who would follow God's laws and lead his people godly in a godly manner. And Solomon did exactly the opposite of every command that we read from Deuteronomy 17. Here we come to Psalm 145. And the juxtaposition, I want it to be sharp. That we come from looking at just briefly the greatest earthly king of Israel, of God's people, human king, in comparison to the king that David here in Psalm 145 is extolling. We're going to look at three things from our psalm this morning. And first is the king deserves universal praise and adoration. This will be the first 13 verses, the majority of the psalm. The king deserves universal praise and adoration. If nothing else this morning, we walk away and say, our king, God himself, and King Jesus deserve universal praise and adoration. We have benefited much this morning. If we are struck at all with a desire and a need for us as God's people to give adoration and praise to our king, then we have grown much. If you have ever written any poetry, you know that it's not the easiest thing. Frankly, reading poetry is also not the easiest thing sometimes. Certain types of poems must maintain certain rules so that a sonnet remains a sonnet and a limerick is not a haiku. Our psalm this morning is not in a style like those, but it is in a pretty cool style that we see just a few times in the Old Testament. It is called an alphabet psalm. 
which means that each verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order. So verse 1 begins with Aleph, then verse 2 with Beit, Gimel begins verse 3, and so on to Tau. You have 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. You only have 21 verses, but there's, there's a variance that some people will say. There's a letter that's missing, and others say, no, it's there. So nonetheless, it's pretty close. Now, the most famous alphabet psalm in the scripture is Psalm 119 which is also the longest psalm by far. The beauty and intentionality of this form is wonderful. And I think in a little bit, we'll see how this fits in with the message of this psalm here. It's not just form for form's sake, but there is beauty within the form. But the form points us to rely upon or emphasize the message of the psalm itself. Another feature of Psalm 145 is that it is David's final psalm in the Psalter, at least one that's noted to be written by him. The king of Israel who wrote the most psalms, and maybe some of the unnamed psalms, wrote this one about the true and better king, who is not over, only king over Israel, but over all the earth for all time, the one from whom we live and move and have our being, the one to whom all praise will be given as the lamb on his throne, slain from the foundations of the world. So why does the psalmist David say that, the, that God deserves worship as a king? Well, notice just in the few, first few verses, he says so in the way that blessing and praise need to be given to God for all of the works that he has done. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. He continues on the verses that follow, down through verse 13, giving all of the great things that God has done on behalf of his people. But notice the language of blessing and praise that are given in the first few verses of this psalm. In verse 1, you have this word extol, which is not a word that we frequently use. It's not in our everyday vocabulary for many of us. But David uses this word to heighten the sense of praise and adoration that is given to God himself. I will extol you. I will praise you. I will bless you with the highest of praise and worship of which you are worthy. The psalmist praise and our praise and all of, as it says in Psalm 145, creation's praise is due to him and he is worthy of it. A psalmist gives a variety of ways in which you, as a worshiper of God, can praise the Lord, and as the psalmist himself praises the Lord. It does not always look like hands in the air singing as loud as you can. I once heard someone say that Presbyterians say amen and get excited by taking notes. Some of you will get that. But look at the variety of praise that is given here in this psalm. Verse 6 says, speak of the might of your awesome deeds. Verse 7 says, pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and sing aloud of your righteousness. So something certainly more than just speaking of the awesome deeds of the Lord, but pour forth and sing aloud. Verse 9, all your saints shall bless you. Verse 10, all your works shall give thanks to you, not just your people, but creation itself. Verses 11 and 12, speak, tell, declare, make known to you all the things that you have done. In different ways, able to be giving back to the Lord the praise that is due to him. With hands in the air, 
singing loudly, with eyes closed and crying, with words that can't be heard and understood sometimes, in quiet declaration, in regular speech, no emotion or full of emotion. God's people can and must. He is worthy of our universal praise. And all creation itself sings the praise and glory of its maker forever and ever. This is not something that is just done temporarily, but several times throughout this psalm, David writes, your praise is due to you forever and ever. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Why does a psalmist declare God to be worthy of universal praise and adoration? Because his is a kingdom that will last forever and ever which means he is the one who has established every other kingdom that has ever existed. He has existed and is over all things for all of eternity, from eternity past to eternity future, before anything else created. And until all things are restored and made right with him in his eternal kingdom. God in his kingdom has written things down for this very purpose, to pass down to generations so that as God's kingship is known and praised for all of eternity, forever and ever, the people of God can praise the Lord by the actions that he has done, by his own declarations of what he has said of himself. As the scriptures have been written down that we might know who he is and what it is he has done for us. Apart from you having the copy of God's word in your hands, what are you left with? You are left with thoughts and feelings. I thinks. I think God is like this. I think this is something that God would do. I think. I feel. When we have God's word where we can stand true and confident and say, I know. And I know this to be true of who our God is and what he has done. Uh, You have the great Shema that is given to God's people Israel in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And to pass that down, to write it on all of the pieces of furniture in your home, to make it clear before your eyes that you would be passing down who God is and what he has done to your children. Kings and Chronicles is given so that we might know who these kings were and what they did under God's kingdom and under his rule. Timothy, as Paul writes to him in the New Testament, was told that he learned from his mother and his grandmother the ways of God, and that that is to be passed down. Are you passing down things to the next generation? What you know to be true of who God is, what you know from God's word, are you passing that on personally? Not just relying on a Sunday school or a church program or a WANA or something else to pass down something to your children to your grandchildren, to the next generation, but are you personally passing down a faith that is genuine to your children? Genuine and honest. Honest when you make mistakes. Honest when you're not walking with Jesus. Honest when you don't know an answer. Honest and genuine. Genuine where your children see the faults and failures, and yet they see the crying and the praying. They see their parents not being ones who stubbornly say, this is what it's going to be like, and don't you ever question. But parents who are humble, willing to be teachable by God himself, parents who are repentant, 
Parents who acknowledge their own wrongs, their own needs to repent and restore relationships, maybe with each other and with their children and with others around. A, a faith that is genuine, a faith that is honest. You pass that down. The question is not if you are passing anything down, but what you are passing down to your children. May we be passing down the truths about who our God is, what it is that He has done on our behalf, and what He's doing for us right now. May we be passing down that we are a people who gather with God's people because we desperately need to be fed. That we sit in the morning or we're up late at night reading God's word because we need it. Not because it's something that we just check off. I can't wait to finally get this checkoff sheet done and read the Bible for once through the year. But because we need it. We want it. We know that it's good for us. Even if some days we don't want it. We know we need it. This is not a king who came for only a short time, a lifetime even, but one whose reign is forever and ever. Queen Elizabeth might have been the longest reigning English monarch, but she has nothing on King Jesus in regards to his reign. He is a God who reigns forever and ever. His kingdom is forever. He is good and he is great to all. That's why he deserves universal praise and worship from his people in verse 3 alone, you have it repeating three times. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. He is great. Verse 7 speaks of His abundant goodness. Do you see those things in God too? Are you praising God today for who He is and what He has done in you, in creation, and in all things forever and ever? For us as Christians, we see God mentioned here as king. And to David, he's referring to God the Father. But because of the illusions given, we clearly see King Jesus here as well. When Christ comes onto the scene in history, he is not treated as a king would be. Not born in a palace, not waited on hand and foot, not trained with the best tutors and masters. He does not sit on an earthly throne to rule after his father, However, like Aragorn in the Lord of the Rings, he is a cloaked king, cloaked to those who are around him, kept from seeing his true identity, though he is king of all. Sometimes I think we might get confused. I get confused sometimes. Should we refer to God the Father as king or is Jesus our king? Well, the answer is both. Scripture refers to both as kings. Psalm 47, clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy, for the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves, a great king over all the earth. Verse 7, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. And then in Revelation chapter 19, speaks of Jesus as king. As it says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written which no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Another poet writing the song that we sing here, crown him the Lord of heaven, enthroned in worlds above. Crown him the king to whom is given the wondrous name of love. Crown him with many crowns as thrones before him fall. Crown him, ye kings, with many crowns, for he is king of all. David commits himself to worshiping God as king. Do you do the same? When was the last time that you acknowledged God as your king? And as David does here several times in this psalm, when was the last time you committed yourself to treating God as king? We can tend to shy away from commitments or words like dedicating ourselves to God. Because sometimes, like we have coming up and was alluded to earlier, we have summer camps coming up. And some of us grew up going to summer camps and this idea of dedication to the Lord, where we would see a child, maybe ourselves, but we would see a child, our friend, let's say, 13 years old, dedicating himself to the Lord for the fourth year in a row at camp, and on the van ride back, Seems like he has dedicated himself to someone else. (laughs) He gets home and nothing is different. Nothing has stuck, right? Brothers and sisters, don't let that discourage you. That a 13, 15, 16-year-old who makes a decision at camp all of a sudden comes home and that commitment doesn't have any lasting power as though that's going to be the same as true for you at 35 or 53 or 85. Because it's not. The very same Spirit of God who led that child to make a decision at camp, to dedicate himself, to say, now, today, following from this point on, I will follow after Christ in a way that doesn't look like what it used to look like. That child can't be expected to all of a sudden go home and on his own, apart from any help, human or God himself, divine, be able to commit himself in that way and to stick to it. What does he desperately need? You and me desperately needs the Holy Spirit that he can walk in God's word and walk in God's truth with the people of God for the glory of God, that he might continue to stick to his commitment, knowing full well he will fail and she will fail and they won't be fully committed to God. All too often, our songs that we can sing sometimes speak as though we will always do this. I will always give my life to you. I will sing of your love forever. No, you won't. The truth is we won't, and there will be times we fail and falter, and we desperately need people to remind us of that. We need God's Word to remind us of that. When we do give up on our commitments, when we do falter in our decisions that we've made for Christ, these dedications or commitments, call it whatever you want. We need to repent. We need to come back to Jesus. We need to be reminded that these dedications and commitments take a lot of effort, spiritually, physically, renewing us again and again. It's not a one-time decision that you can make and then go back to doing everything the way that you used to do it before. 
Brothers and sisters, we can dedicate ourselves to God every single day and multiple times a day when we're repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus again. And that can happen at a summer camp and it can happen in your shower. Doesn't need to go to summer camp to do that, but what a beautiful opportunity to be under the preaching of God's word, unhindered from other external things. And that's what camp offers and provides. The preaching of God's word multiple times a day to children who no longer have devices in their hands. Beautiful. But we can do the same thing here. And so, brothers and sisters, whether we're at camp or we're not, whether you're at work, on your commute, or you're here sitting here this morning, it could be an opportunity for you to say, today's the day. Today, I want to get serious about committing myself to my king. I want to be in his word. I want to follow him as his subject. I want to do what he has said for me to do because I know what God calls us to do. Look at how the psalmist is responding to all of these things that God has done for him. You are worth all of our praise and all of our adoration. All universal praise is yours because you are the king of all the earth. No one else has ever had that title. No one else is called king of kings and lord of lords. No one else can be tattooed on the thigh like Jesus will be when he returns on a white horse. Did you hear? Others will be coming on white horses. No one else is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords for a very good reason. He is worth our commitment, our dedication, our decisions for. But we need to be able to come to those recognizing honestly, we will fall. Because we are not the true and perfect King as Jesus is. We will fall. As the psalmist says here, he will catch us. He will uphold, verse 14, all who are falling and raise up all who are bowed down. The king deserves universal praise and adoration. Verses 14 through 19, we, secondly, we owe everything to the king. We owe everything to the king. From the things like the basics of life, like food, verse 15, to all of our desires, he satisfies, verse 16 and 19. The very fact that he hears us when we cry or call out to him, verse 18. He upholds us. He raises us up if we are falling, if we are bowed down. He is near to us. All of this language that he is close, he is taking care of us. We owe everything to him. The breath that we breathe, the salvation that we enjoy, he is good, he is kind, and he is righteous. He is not just one that we bow to in submission as, as though we have to with, with this desire to obey, not out of any joy or anything that remarks of a, a relationship, but I have to. That's not the way that David is writing of the Lord. David is writing as a king who has come and is worshiping the true king, God himself, and there is great joy in it. There is great joy in relationship. There is benefit and blessing that he has seen over his time with the Lord. We owe everything to the king. And lastly, the last two verses, the king does not treat everyone the same. This is sort of a strange one. But you notice the king does not treat everyone the same. He says in verse 20, the Lord is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. 17 times in 21 verses, all is repeated. In this psalm, 
145, 21, excuse me, 17 times the word all is repeated. And we would expect that from an alphabet psalm. And what I mean is this, it's like saying that God is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. What that doesn't mean is that God is only the beginning and God is only the end. He's only the alpha and only the omega, which are the first and the last letters in the Greek alphabet and nothing in between. You're, you're the guy in between. That's what, no, it doesn't mean that. It means he's the alpha and the omega and everything else. But we're using these two bookends to sandwich everything in between and say that he is all in all. He is everything, using even the most simplistic form of our writing, which is our alphabet. He is the alpha and the omega. Here, he is the aleph and the tau. He is all that there is. He is the beginning and the end. And this word all, I think, repeated over and over again to show even in the midst of every single letter of the alphabet, our king is found. Our king is there. Our king is providing for us. Our king ought to be worshiped. In everything that happens to you, your king is good to you. And his mercy is over all that he has made. We would expect this psalm and others to say that God is good to Israel. Like Psalm 73 says, Asaph writing, God surely is good to his people, to Israel. But here we read that God is good to all. Not only to all people even, but to all creation. God is faithful and righteous and kind in all his works. He upholds all who are falling, raises up all who are bowed to the ground. He is near to all who call on him in truth. He preserves all who love him. However, as this is clearly made to be more than just Israel that God is good to, he's good to all, and even more than just people in general, this cannot be used in a case like universalism. Universalism is the belief that God will save everyone, no matter if they believe in him or not. But this is not at all what is being mentioned in this psalm or anywhere in the scriptures. But look at the language that is given here in the psalmist. It says he raises up everyone, verse 14. No, not everyone, but those who are bowed to the ground. It doesn't say he raises up everyone, but only those who are bowed to the ground. He is near to everyone. No, not everyone, but those who call on him. And then it repeats itself. The same phrase repeats itself again and adds the disclaimer in truth. To add emphasis, the psalmist says, he will call all who call on him. He is near all who call on him in truth. He preserves everyone. No, not everyone, but only those who love him. See, too often we have to be able to read the scriptures and read all of it to be able to get its context. And you might say that it says that the Lord is good to all. There you have it. That means he's good to everyone. Indeed he is. But what about that verse that says God works all things for our good? No, we have to read the whole verse. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, you might say, well, what about John 3.16? It says all the world, right? For God so loved the world. But the second half of the verse gives the qualifiers of the first half. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever that, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Look at the qualifier, only for those who believe in him. 
will have eternal life. For God so loved the world does not mean that everyone in the whole entire world will be saved. The second verse, second half of the verse helps us with the first half. Only those who believe will be saved and will have eternal life. God loves the whole world, people in all of creation, so much, not that he saves them all, but that he sent his only son to come to earth. That does not mean in any way that he loves the world all in the same way or that all will be saved. Now, you see this all the time in the way that you love your wife as a woman, but you don't love her in the same way you love other women. We hope not. You love them both, but the love you have for your wife is unique to her in your relationship with her and not in comparison the same way that you love any other woman in the world. Now, for those that didn't get that analogy, you might get this one. It's the same way as what you love watching professional football. Now, some of you love watching professional football, but you have a unique and special love for the Seahawks, right? So what is the definition of love? Is it the love I have for the Seahawks or the love that I have for professional football? The love I have for my wife or the love I have for, in general for women? What is the definition of love? What relationship is there with that person that you love? So much changes when we define things the way that God defines them. God works all things for your good. He does, but my life is not exactly how I hoped it would be. You might be saying it doesn't always seem very good. But the question is, what definition are you using of good? Our idea of good would look really similar to what makes us happy. God's definition of good, though, is doing whatever it takes to sanctify you and save you for all of eternity. And then you will be very happy and full of joy. And no doubt, throughout your life, all of those things will lead to happiness and joy. So that will most certainly include some pretty hard things, things you don't like at all, things you may hate that God says are good, things that bring you to the end of yourself, where you realize you cannot control your life and circumstances and you desperately need Jesus as king to save you from yourself. That is a good, good place to be in. You will never regret God working for you that kind of good, but you would regret it if you had only your kind of good and it led you to eternal destruction. God as king does not work in the same way for all people. The Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak of the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. God's working in kindness to us is not based on personality or size or ethnicity or ability, but based on character and devotion. There is a boundary, not everyone, but those who love him and the wicked he will destroy. So even in the midst of God as king, living under his kingship, his rule and reign, if ever going through difficult stuff, hard stuff, or life, and it seems as though God is not present and not working for your good, we can ask two questions. Number one, am I God's child? We have to start there. Is he my king? Have I come to submit myself to God as king? Am I his? Have you trusted in Jesus to save you? And if yes... 
and you still are struggling with this difficulty in which I'm facing, is God good? Why is God doing this? Then the second question is, what dictionary am I using? Am I God's child? Yes. What dictionary am I using? I'm using my own that says good means happiness. Good means success in everything I want. The gimmies. I want all the gimmies. I want everything that I want. And God doesn't give me everything that I want. We sing a song at our house. I probably have mentioned this before, but we sing it regularly with our children. You can't always get what you want. We don't sing the whole song because I don't know the whole song. I only know that phrase. I don't even know where it comes from, but I heard it one time and I sing it. And they, mm-hmm, yeah, we heard that before. But it's true. We tell our children, no, we don't give them everything that they want. That'd be a horrible parent. God does the same for us because our parenting in the best days is modeled after God's. And God's is always giving us what we need, what we truly and fully will want. God as king comes. He is worthy of our universal praise and uh, admiration, our worship that is due to him. And God as our king is the one who gives us everything that we have. All that we have comes from his good hand. And thankfully, God in his kindness has worked to bring us salvation. And for those of us who have put our faith and trust in him alone as king and as Lord of our life, may we with Paul, as he writes to 1 Timothy, say, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father, we are grateful this morning.